What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. No Will today. He is a southerner in snow away on a skiing trip, but we've still got plenty of good stuff for everyone today. I want to talk a ton of Arkansas with my guy, John Neighbors. Obviously, had a huge win over the weekend against Kentucky. I watched basically all of that game. We're going to dig into some off-season football storylines and a little bit of Petrino stuff with John as well. Then our producer, Dan Matthews, he's going to join me to talk gas station food and figuring it out. But first, barring some abrupt resignation or firing, I believe that Liam Cohen leaving Kentucky and Kentucky, Kentucky hiring Rich Scangarello from the 49ers was the last coordinator or head coaching change that we'll see in the SEC before the start of 2022, which if you kind of read the tea leaves with that, Kentucky fans super fired up about it, understandably so. Shanahan assistant kind of get to roll with the momentum that you built with Liam Cohen, but then you kind of look at the 49er fans and they were actually kind of pumped to the fact that, that they got rid of a guy who, well, not got rid of, but they lost a guy who was part of that brutal offensive finish down the stretch with Jimmy G. But we'll put a pin on that discussion later. What I do think is worth breaking down is the bigger picture with this hiring cycle. What did we learn from it? I think back to something Mike Elko said on this podcast last week. And it's a question I've wanted to ask for a long time, but there really aren't a ton of people who could answer it. How much is being a defensive mind held against coaches during the hiring process? Actually, Dan, let's let's put in the audio of Elko's answer to that question because it bears repeating. When you look at what's going on in the playoffs every year, you know, you've got Luke Fickle, you've got Nick Saban, you've got Kirby Smart, uh, you've got defensive-minded head coaches at the top of the game in so many ways. But but yeah, it does feel like at times it's a little hurdle. Um, everyone assumes we don't know anything about offensive football and uh, we just want to win games seven to three. And, and so, you know, I think over the years, though, you just kind of learn how to how to talk through it and uh, kind of put your story across and present yourself. OK, there's a lot to break down within that statement. Elko is right. You look at the playoff, Saban, defensive mind, Kirby, defensive mind, Fickle, defensive mind, Harbaugh, offensive mind, but only got to the playoff because he finally hired the right defensive mind. And oh, by the way, he had a defensive player who was the Heisman runner up on his team. If you include Dave Aranda, four of the top five finishers in the AP poll were led by defensive minds. In 2020, four of the top 10 finishers in the AP poll were defensive-minded head coaches. And I think there's some fear there's still this lingering concern that if you hire a defensive-minded head coach, you're automatically gonna be bringing on like a Will Muschamp or a Jeremy Pruitt who can't handle a quarterback room. Kirby probably would have been put into that group as well pre-2021, a little bit different after you win a national championship. I get to a certain extent because what a blessing it is in this quarterback-driven era of the sport to actually have a head coach who calls plays like a Dan Mullen or a Mike Leach. Having to go out and hire that offensive mind to run the offense, call plays on that side of the ball, is it's such a major thing to check off that list. And when you hire a defensive-minded head coach, obviously that box still needs to be checked. It's also an easy default to blame the decision to hire the defensive-minded head coach when the offense sucks. If you look, even though like when you look at the bottom 10 of the offenses in the sport in 2021, it was a 50-50 split of offensive-minded head coaches versus defensive-minded head coaches. Another point worth mentioning. In the SEC, who are the longest tenured coaches, the three longest tenured head coaches in the SEC. Uh, Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Mark Stoops, all defensive minds. That quote from Elko about the hiring bias came on the day that Liam Cohen agreed to that Rams offensive coordinator gig. I am not saying that Liam Cohen is underqualified. 
You will not find a bigger Liam supporter than me. I think there's maybe a 30% chance that we're related. But dude was a first time offensive play caller at the FBS level and he just got a promotion to become the offensive coordinator of the Super Bowl champs. Compare that to Elko, who has been one of the best defensive minds in the sport for most of the playoff era. He's been a defensive coordinator at four different FBS programs, last three of which were power five. That's for the last 13 years that he's been an FBS defensive coordinator. And he finally got to break through and get the head gig at Duke, which let's be honest, it's one of the worst power five programs in terms of historical success. That trend this coaching cycle showed us hasn't necessarily changed. But what might be changing is the very thing that Elko talked about. That is being like, ah, let's not hire a defensive-minded coach to take over this Power 5 program. Because what did Oklahoma, what did Oregon do? They hired a defensive-minded head coach. Seven of the 14 Power 5 vacancies were filled by defensive-minded coaches. If you bump it out to all of the FBS vacancies, 11 were filled by defensive-minded head coaches, 17 were filled by offensive-minded head coaches. By the way, 28 vacancies is a ton. I think some of that was post-pandemic, get some of that revenue back so boosters aren't necessarily being asked to help schools make ends meet there. Compare that to last year though, where 2020, we saw four openings in the SEC, but we only had 15 FBS head coaching vacancies. In that cycle, we only saw two power five vacancies filled by defensive-minded head coaches, head coaches, and they were Illinois and Vandy. That's it. Way, way different than this cycle, talking about programs like Oklahoma, Oregon, Virginia Tech, who rolled with defensive-minded head coaches. So maybe that bias that, that Elko was talking about. Maybe it's fading a little bit because I think it should. Again, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Also, again, I still haven't figured out who these sickos are who are out here skinning cats, but there should be pushback because the pendulum had swung too far in the opposite direction with offensive minds, even in this era of offensive minded football. You know what this trend didn't establish? Or I should say a trend that wasn't established in this coaching cycle. College coaches leaving for the NFL head coaches at the college level, leaving for the NFL. Didn't see that. Remember when all these college coaches were gonna leave for the NFL because they didn't wanna deal with NIL? You're never gonna believe this, but it didn't happen. Dabo didn't go to the Jags. Ryan Day didn't go to the Bears, sadly. Dan Mullen didn't go anywhere besides home and Harbaugh didn't even get the job that he thought he was going to with the Minnesota Vikings. It's always leverage. It's always leverage. Only three current NFL head coaches came directly from a college job. Matt Rule, who left historical bottom feeder Baylor and got nearly $9 million annually to join the Panthers, which pissed off a bunch of other owners because it was a smaller market team shelling out major cash, and it definitely skewed things. There's Cliff Kingsbury, who failed up somehow by getting fired at Texas Tech and landing the Arizona Cardinals gig, more power to you. And then there's Pete Carroll, who escaped a slew of sanctions at USC and left for the Seahawks 12 years ago. All of those guys would have been foolish to turn down the NFL opportunities that they got. Even if you wanna go back 15 years and find every example of a college coach who left directly for the NFL, which that excludes someone like Urban Meyer who had the break in between, look at the programs that they left. Chip Kelly left from Oregon to the Eagles, but his salary more than doubled because Oregon is way cheaper than people realize. Doug Marone left Syracuse for the Bills because, hey, who wouldn't, even though Dinosaur Barbecue in Syracuse, New York, dynamite. Relax, I'm not saying that it's better than Southern Barbecue or anything, but very, very good. Greg Schiano left Rutgers for the Bucks. 
obvious upgrade there. Jim Harbaugh left Stanford for the 49ers, which actually made a ton of sense because Stanford had limitations, of course, academically speaking, with the type of athlete they're able to recruit. They were also a dumpster fire before Harbaugh got there, which we forget. There was also some incentive to be able to cash in on what Andrew Luck did. Bobby Petrino left Louisville for the Falcons, which is again, a lesser power five school, and then it flamed out horribly. That's not the last Bobby Petrino reference you will hear on this podcast. In the last 15 years, that's it in terms of the college head coaches going directly to the NFL. Why? There's more stability in college football than there is in the NFL, especially if you're at one of the better power five programs where the playing field isn't level like it is in the NFL. And even if there isn't stability there at one of those jobs at the power five level, the buyout money is still absurd because all these universities insist on having a coach with at least four years left on a deal. So even if the NFL contract is more lucrative in terms of annual average salary, there's a decent chance there's still more money to be made from a college contract. As much as some will continue to say that Coach X is considering a jump to the NFL, you can close your eyes and see the Adam Schefter tweet now. Remember that this is always being leaked by the agents. And who knows, maybe with the way this Urban Meyer thing flamed out, we're gonna accept more than ever that there are so few big time college coaches who leave and have NFL success. Urban, Saban, Spurrier, arguably the three best coaches at the college level in the last 30 years. And all of them were far, far different stories in the NFL. But I continue to look forward to hearing about James Franklin considering a move to the NFL and watching him squirm out of that question, even though he just hired Jimmy Sexton as his agent last offseason. Speaking of that, 10-year deals, they're the new thing. They're massive. They're terrifying. They're everywhere. James Franklin, Mel Tucker, Jimbo Fisher, Brian Kelly, Lincoln Riley, Mario Cristobal all got these new 10-year mega deals. I'm actually sort of amazed that Saban's new deal was only eight years long, but he is making $10.6 million annually, so don't feel too bad for him. And besides, Saban isn't exactly the dude who follows suit. He sets the market, not follows it. That's why the annual compensation will continue to be at the top of the sport as long as he's on the sidelines. That's why Kirby Smart is likely about to get a 10-year deal if and when Scott Brooks puts pens to pen to paper and makes the inevitable extension of reality. 10 years, fully guaranteed money. Mel Tucker got it because LSU would have made a ton of sense for him to leave. They had something at Michigan State this year that they really only had one other time in the 21st century. It was for about a three-year window with Mark D'Antonio. Now you avoid any speculation with having a 10-year contract for Mel Tucker, these other guys who got him. You also have assistants who aren't necessarily gonna to have to worry about you bolting. You don't have to justify your commitment to recruits. And you can have everyone in your building fully aligned because even if they wanted to fire you and there was a little bit of that divide internally, paying north of $50 million to part ways with a coach, it's not even worth thinking about, all right? And forget wasting your breath. It's not worth wasting your brain space. The ceiling, another important thing that we saw during this coaching cycle. The ceiling, the ceiling, the ceiling. Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Oregon. They all had coaches who saw their respective ceilings and they were never gonna take that next step needed to elevate their talent level and win a national championship. That has changed so much in the playoff era. Only six programs have won a playoff game. Six programs, that's it. The margin for error to win a title with a 15 game season has never been smaller because now you've got everyone playing conference championships as well. That's a big part of this. So instead of needing 12 or 13 wins to be a champ like some were pre-playoff era in the 21st century, that number is now at 14 or 15 games that you gotta win. And if you don't have elite talent on your roster, you're not winning in a playoff game against a more talented team with a month to prepare. They'll never admit it, 
But that's why Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma for USC. It's why Brian Kelly left Notre Dame for LSU. And it's even why Mario Cristobal left Oregon for Miami. Even though he is a Miami guy, there's more to it than just that. Miami saw its ceiling and realized it wasn't going anywhere unless it started spending like an SEC program. And surely that mattered to Mario Cristobal when he was actually thinking about leaving Oregon for Miami. Speaking of spending like an SEC program, you know what we still haven't seen in the SEC since James Franklin left Vandy for Penn State? You haven't seen an SEC head coach leave the conference for another Power 5 job. That's why when I heard those Lane Kiffin and Miami rumors, I kind of just laughed. Some, some still think that because a less mature Lane left the SEC for USC more than a decade ago, that we could see something like that really, really soon. But what that ignores is the TV revenue boom of the playoff era, wherein now SEC teams are getting $50 million checks and instead of having administrations beg boosters to pay for new facilities, they can beg for increased spending on hiring coaches and recruiting. Now, that doesn't mean that it'll never happen. There's a chance that we could have watched that playoff era streak come to an end if Mark Stoops or Shane Beamer, if they took the Oklahoma job, yeah, that streak would have ended. But also think about their incentive to stay. Stoops just signed a new deal that'll be worth uh, eventually $8 million annually at Kentucky. Kentucky for football, yeah. He also got that new indoor facility that he's been wanting forever because when you have an athletic director like Mitch Barnhart, who is aligned with the head coach, you can make these things happen. Meanwhile, Shane Beamer just finished year one at South Carolina, which besides having an excellent atmosphere at williams Bryce, also has a beautiful new $50 million facility that's as good as there is in the country. That's alignment. That's continuing to evolve and setting coaches up to succeed. Eventually, another Power 5 conference will poach an SEC coach. It'll be one of those offers he couldn't refuse, and maybe we'll see a program like Florida State or Michigan throw out some 10-year guaranteed deal at an SEC coach. But at this point, sort of feels like uh, that's what it'll take to poach a non-Vandy coach because there have been 15 instances of that happening since the start of the 2010 season. And that's the lone instance in which we saw that from the SEC. That is an SEC head coach get hired by another Power 5 program and leave the conference. I'll continue to assume that it's a lot harder to poach an SEC head coach than some realize. That was a lot, (laughs) which I think was fitting because this coaching carousel was a lot. Let's kick it to my buddy, John Neighbors. I've known John and Ty Richardson for a minute here doing their shows in Arkansas. John is super plugged in on all things hogs, so I figured after the weekend that was, now would be a perfect time to get the pulse of the Razorback faithful. So here is John Neighbors. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is the host of Out of Bounds, John Neighbors. John, this is big because I realized that by having you on, I have now had all four members of the single greatest rendition of Bubba Sparks Miss New Booty that the world has ever seen. That includes Bubba Sparks, by the way. I want that to be known. Barrett already told the story about being Bubba Sparks' internet friend. Did you peak that night? Uh, yeah. I, in fact, I've been trying to recreate any sort of close way I could possibly relive any sort of feeling I had from that night when I peaked, but I have not been able to, I've been trying, I've, you know, I've, I've thought about, you know, maybe going into a music career instead of doing sports, but, uh, I can't sing. And apparently to, to be good in music, you have to like sing or be able to rap or be able to do something. So yeah, I peaked that night, man, but uh, you know, it's just, I got a goal. I got somewhere I can at least look at and try to attain once again sometime here soon. I actually think that your backup vocals as the other guy in Shaggy with uh, our, our good buddy, Chris Cordy. Yeah. I think that's your best work. I, I was in the car yesterday. 
listening to, of course, the classic shaggy hit Angel. And when that came on, I'm thinking to myself, man, I think John and Gordy do, do shaggy better than shaggy does. Yeah. I think that, uh, for like, first off, Gordy does an awesome shaggy. Like, it's unbelievable. He, he, yeah, he's, he's definitely the star of that show, but I keep thinking about like, I, when I was doing it, you know, just singing or whatever, but then I want to watch it back. Cause you know, we record all these. <laughs> oh, I still got it on my phone. Yeah. yeah. It's like, when I listen back to it, I'm like, I think the guy, the DJ, he may have like been putting some, uh, some auto tune or something on the mic because it sounds like I don't sound like that. Like I, I think that that was a lot better than what it actually was, but I'll take it. I ain't mad about it. I'll take it. Yeah, no, it was, it was impressive. And it just goes to show you, you never know what you're capable of until you get up to the mic and you try and rip off some shaggy. That's just the That's best right. way to do it. That's the way it goes. Saturday, that atmosphere looked incredible. Um, Bud Walton, I, I think this year has really, really stepped forward and become one of the best atmospheres in college basketball. And, you know, you could say it's a program that has obviously cared about it for a really long time. But at the, at, at the same time, when you see these moments where Auburn, you know, the rush of floor, of course, everybody saw that. And then the just the noise constantly getting off to that good of a start, which is so key in a situation like that. How did that on Saturday beating Kentucky compare to Auburn where the scene was a little bit different because of maybe at the time it felt like Auburn was kind of on a different tier? Yeah, I would say that as far as the atmosphere during the games, there were some similarities. I mean, I mean, when you pack in 20,000 people in the Bud Walton Arena, I don't care what anybody says. Um, it is the greatest atmosphere in the SEC for sure. And one of the top ones in the country. And I think the Auburn one, I would probably give just a little bit of an edge to. And I know that your Auburn watchers and listeners are probably going to be like, oh, yeah, they treated it as our, their Super Bowl. It's like, no. What it was is that you were the number one team in the country. And also leading into that moment, Arkansas had yet to really have a big marquee win. Yeah, Like they had had some decent wins. Like they went on the road to beat LSU, which was fine. But that was their first like, all right, let's see where we stack up. Let's see just how good we are. And they went out and performed in one and the court rushing goes into overtime. It was a great game by both teams. Like both teams played well. So uh, that one, I'd probably give the edge to, but once they got to that point, once Arkansas fans saw, okay, we are capable of beating anybody. Then I think it started just to become more of, all right, that was our, that was our fun moment. That was our moment to when we realized it. Now let's get to where we expect it. And that's kind of what the the atmosphere was against Kentucky, where it was insane. It was loud. It was intimidating. Uh, you know, it was something that everybody would expect out of an Arkansas Kentucky game. But it wasn't because of just Kentucky coming to town. It was because Arkansas was expecting to beat a really great team in Kentucky and they were going to do whatever it took to win the game. So the fact that not only you had Auburn, but then Tennessee, who was a really good team too last Saturday, and then Kentucky, that's three straight games in Bud Walton Arena where Arkansas is three and oh but the atmospheres were just incredible. Um, Auburn's by far, I think, or not by far, but I think Auburn's the best one, but Kentucky, anytime they come to town, it's always going to be a really big deal. And the, uh, the atmosphere and the stripe out and everything involved was really awesome. What's up with the Kentucky Arkansas beef that you guys have going with my, uh, my, my friends over at KSR. Yeah. It's like, I don't have a beef with those guys. Like I know Nick rush, uh, who, who works over there. He's a good, good dude. He's a good guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know, I know Matt Jones, which, you know, love or hate Matt Jones. I at least respect his, uh, his ability to do what we do really well, you know, content creation and all those things. So, uh, but you know, they're just, they're Kentucky basketball fans and Kentucky basketball fans are really annoying. Just like a lot of fan bases are. So, 
you know, when they, when they have such a platform to be able to, to do what they do, you know, there's always going to be some back and forth and everything to go along with it. It's all in good fun. And I think Arkansas and Kentucky, especially back in the nineties, when both teams were really good, they had a great rivalry going on. In fact, one of the more underrated rivalries in college basketball. Now Kentucky kept it going and kept being really good, but Arkansas had some down years and maybe a couple down decades, but still uh, getting back to that point just means a lot more. And I think that just because you have that fan base and, and they're kind of the the faces of that fan base. And then you have Arkansas, the back and forth that goes along with it. It's not just a rivalry on the court, but it can be a rivalry in the media as well. It's almost like a little brother type thing where Kentucky's trying to be the big brother in this situation. I'm not saying that Arkansas is Kentucky's little brother, but there's almost that dynamic of like trying to keep Arkansas in its place. And there's, there's this certain bravado that Kentucky is always going to have because when you've been at that level and you are undoubtedly a blue blood, that is going to be par for the course for them. But at the same time, it is kind of fun and it does kind of speak to the nature of the SEC basketball and what it has become where you're seeing a lot of programs that feel like, Hey, it, this isn't just Kentucky and everybody else in the SEC anymore. And that I think is fun. And that's what's changed so far in the 2020s with the SEC hoops in general. And it feels like the SEC tournament is like winning that that's going to be a big deal. Winning that is like, Hey, one seeds up for grabs. Have you opened yourself up to the idea of Arkansas potentially, potentially sneaking in for a one seed? Or is that like, all right, even if they win the SEC tournament, two seed at best. Yeah, two seat, uh, two seat at best. Because I mean, yeah. Arkansas still got six losses, and then you know they don't really put a lot of number one seeds in with six losses, especially. And that's the weirdest thing about Arkansas this year. And I know that that's just the way the season's gone. But there's six losses. I don't think one of them have been to a tournament team. God, they, right. they lost. They lost to Oklahoma, who's not very good. They got smoked. They lost to Hofstra, which was embarrassing. They lost to AM. They lost to Vanderbilt at home, and then they lost to Mississippi State. And of course, Alabama, I guess Alabama is a tournament team. So I I take that back, but uh, still the majority of the losses uh, have been against uh, teams that aren't even in the NCAA tournament. So uh, that's, I think kind of been what's going to hold them back. And now they were close games for the most part too, but still uh, two seed would be the pipe dream. Best case scenario. I think three seed is pretty realistic Uh, four seed at minimum at this point, I think, especially with two games left on the, on the regular schedule, but uh, real quick though, to go back to your point about Arkansas and Kentucky and and the sec, I think that Arkansas and Kentucky are kind of like the old heads in the old historical programs. Well, yeah, Florida has been a great one, but I try to put it this way when it comes to how you looked at at programs and how historical they are. Like Florida's got a national champ, like back-to-back national champs. They were great, but they had Billy Donovan. That's why they were great. It's because they just had one guy, Billy Donovan. I think with Kentucky and Arkansas, they're one of the few programs in the SEC that have multiple Hall of Fame coaches and where the program was built upon that. Like Kentucky, of course, you know, they got so many coaches, you know, you can't even name them all. But Arkansas, too, you know, with Eddie Sutton, Hall of Fame coach, Nolan Richardson, Hall of Fame coach. Is Eric Musselman going to be a Hall of Fame coach? I don't know, but he's definitely speaking into level. existence. Do yeah, it. <laughs> like he, he's, he's, he's at that level. So I think that that's where Arkansas and Kentucky, like even though Auburn's coming along and that's great that their fans have become fans over the past like three years of basketball and I think they've made it. Like that's great. And that's really cute. Great. Uh, you've been to 10 NCAA tournaments in your program. Arkansas has been to like almost 10 Final Four. So don't, don't go there just yet. But I think that just because those programs have been around for so long and they kind of have a lot of similarities – them Arkansas coming back to existence like Kentucky wants Arkansas to stay in their place. But there's also a mutual thing where it's kind of like they want us to be good, just like we want them to be good. So when we play each other, 
it's going to mean a lot more. The SEC wants these two programs to be great at basketball and Arkansas is finally kind of putting together and doing their share. But yeah, they're kind of like the old school uh, historic rivalries and the other teams that are coming along are more of the new school, which is fine. That's great. But, you know, there's just an element whenever it's Arkansas and Kentucky together. You watch on Saturday the things that J.D. Note is doing. And man, there are some Kemba Walker, Shabazz Napier type vibes. Is, is this a guy who is capable of that type of run for Arkansas? You know, I did a pod, my podcast, Locked on Razorbacks podcast earlier today on this where, yeah, I talked about the game, but way I put it is I'm like, J.D. Note is box office. And what I mean by that is there are certain players that have great stats, great numbers, great games, great everything. But when the lights are on the brightest and you have a player that's able to take over a game and do the type of things that J.D. Note was able to do on Saturday, not only on CBS, at 1 p.m. on a Saturday, but against Kentucky, against a top five team, a team against a team that's good enough to win a national championship where that team is at full health and that team knows what that player is capable of in J.D. Note. And you still go for 30 points and you still get eight assists, which, by the way, those eight assists led to 20 points. So you're talking about 50 points jd note was responsible for that's two-thirds of what arkansas had on on saturday all of that mixed together should make razorback fans and everybody else feel like this team can and will make a run in march once they get there because the lights aren't too bright for these guys like the the moment's not too big for them arkansas is undefeated against the ap top 25 now granted these games aren't going to be played in bud walton we all know that but the games aren't going to be played on the road either they're neutral site games. And when you have somebody that's that good that can put together that type of performance against a team like that, who's to say they won't be doing able to do it against other teams in the NCAA tournament? So, you know, that's what makes this team so mentally tough and so much fun to watch. And why Razorback fans feel so strongly about them is because in the biggest and brightest moments, they deliver. And J.D. Note on Saturday delivered big time. It kind of reminded me of like a Kimba Walker, man, where it was just yeah. like everything he was throwing up didn't matter what you did. Didn't matter how you guarded him. He was getting his. And so that type of performance in that moment has got to make you think that Arkansas not only is, is going to be a really good team in the NCAA tournament, but could even make it back to the Elite Eight, dare I say, Final Four, if it all goes their way. I love Jalen Williams. I do. I really do. He, he is fun to watch with 95% of what he does. But when they sit down this offseason and they examine why the charge rules need to be changed, they're going to have some Jalen Williams clips ready to go. Do you cringe when you when you see that play out because of how good he does everything else except I mean, and he does sell the charge very well. So I shouldn't even say that he doesn't do it well. But does it make you feel like ah, we're a little bit dirty because we have a guy that does that at such a high level? You know, I would I, I mean. You know, anytime it's your guy, you know, you never you always want to look the other way. You know? it's, not, it's not really a not really a big deal when it's your guy doing it. But no, I totally get it. In fact, uh, I think it's 45 charges now he's taken so far this year. Yeah, which is like if you do the math, it's almost like it's like a charge and a half per game. It's too bad. So like some something stupid like that. But of those 45, I would say probably 15 of them at least we're probably, you know, it probably should have gone the other way, but still, even if you take away those 30 charges, still great. Like I don't consider it as, as dirty necessarily because I don't think it's taking anything away from the game. Like, I know I'm going to probably upset a lot of people, but like, like Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss, like faking injuries. I feel mm. like, okay, that's, that's taking away from the game. Like that, that you're faking stuff to stop the game, to stop the play. You're taking advantage of, 
you know, basically making it seem like something serious, like an injury or something that people take seriously in order to get a benefit from you, get a free timeout. To me, that's, that's pretty, that takes, that's integrity. That's, that takes away from the game. But what Jalen Williams is doing, some people will say, well, he's taking advantage of a rule or what that he's letting the officials make the judgment call. You know, that's at the end of the day, that's on the officials, like the injuries and stuff you can't do anything about because there's a rule in place to where, you know, what are the officials going to do? Do not say the injury is fake. They can't do that. But at the end of the day, that's up to the officials. They're the ones that got to make the call. So I think that Jalen Williams has just, yeah, has, I think he's a great charge taker for sure. And that's why I call him the MasterCard man. He's taking those charges. <laughs> like he's great at it. But I also do think that, like you said, in the offseason, they will look at this because the, the charge block uh, foul call is, is, is broken and needs a lot of work. And I'm sure they'll look a lot about what Jalen Williams has done and make those adjustments. But as of right now, he, he's just making, putting it in the officials' hands. You know, it's kind of like the same thing where, you know, if you're looking at other football references too, it, it's kind of like pass interference. Like if there's a guy that just keeps pushing or tugging or, or whatever, is, are you going to say, oh, you're being dirty? Or are you going to be like, no, that's the official's job. They got to make that call. He's just doing, getting away with whatever the officials are giving him. So I, I don't look at it as dirty. I understand why people who play Arkansas get frustrated and hate it and think it's pretty lame. Totally get it. Uh, but I don't know. I just think that's more of an official's problem than it is a, a Jalen Williams problem. I think they got to change the calls of what what um, a blocker charge is, not to go all Rex Chapman, but just the physical motion of it. I think officials enjoy doing that motion too much. And that's part of it. And so they can kind of, you know, even when they do a, the blocking foul and they get their hips involved and nobody does it like TV Teddy, but you know, like, the, the, if they just changed it to a simple like this, or, or they did like an encroachment penalty and did that motion and said, I think you'd cut down on charges. I think yeah. they would stop calling them as much. I think they just have too much fun doing it. And, you know, Jalen Williams, to his credit, um, is is enjoying that, that element of the game. But, you know, that's going to continue to be a topic of conversation. Unrelated to that, Saturday night, I tweeted that I imagine Hunter Juracek spends every Saturday night drinking a glass of bourbon in an oversized leather chair and marvels at how he crushed his hires. The irony of that was when I tweeted that, I was in fact drinking a large glass of bourbon in my oversized chair, marveling at the hires that Hunter Juracek made. How often do you think about those crucial decisions that he made when he could have gone in a bunch of different directions with both hires? You know, it's one of those things where I almost don't want to think about it too much because then I get nervous that something's going to happen. <laughs> like, mm. you know, like who, who's going to get on the motorcycle type thing. Cause it, it's <laughs> going so well, man, it, it's going so well for Arkansas and Hunter, you're you know, like I think Jeff long in the beginning, people embraced and liked, but at the end, everyone kind of saw this dude's just about himself. This guy just wants to promote himself. He's always about, you know, him being the college football a chair, a playoff chair. And, and I'm like, okay, see this, 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 are you more about winning? Or are you more about yourself? And there was that vibe and he moved on by Hunter, you check. There's nothing about this guy that shows that he, he's about himself. He's a competitor. Like he played basketball. He's a basketball guy. He's a sports guy. He wants to win. And he, I think he understands more so than anything, because at the end of the day, the athletic director's job, of course, is to make money and to raise money and, and to, you know, continue to build facilities and hire coaches, like all those things. But at the end of the day, it comes down to money. And he understands that in the state of Arkansas, especially when you're the only major program in this state, but there is a ton of money in this state, a lot of great businesses in this state, winning is what will provide the most amount of money, not promotion, not gimmicks, not any winning. 
And so him having that mentality and looking at that first and, and being able to see coaches that may not make sense to Razorback fans at the time, or may make fans say, okay, let's wait and see type thing. His, his foresight and being able to identify what it takes to have a great coach, not only in, in theory, but at Arkansas, because let's be honest, I, Sam Pittman, I love the guy. He is awesome. But I don't know if Sam Pittman would be as good at Arkansas if he was at Ole Miss or at Mississippi State good point. Or, or, or whatever. He's great at Arkansas. It's a perfect fit because he loves Arkansas more than anything. Like, it's not just something he says. He loves it here. He wanted this job. He didn't want to leave it when he was the offensive line coach. He loves it here. Muss is a guy that just, like, he always has just wanted to kind of do it his, his way and promotion and all that stuff, just always do it his way. And Juracek has provided him the opportunity of like, yeah, go crazy. As long as you're winning, go crazy, do whatever you need to do. And so I just think that the, the coaches that he's brought in are just good fits for Arkansas, but those coaches also fit in at Arkansas because they're allowed to be innovative, be creative and be able to be successful in their own right. And so people like your could probably run for governor and win. Like, honestly, like, yeah. they love him that much and don't want to see him go. And I can't tell you every time I see your out in public or at a Razorback event, the amount of fans just coming up to him, they don't, they don't say anything else, but just thank you. That's all they say. Thank you for doing what you do for hiring these coaches where other people may have counted us out. Other people thought us we were dead in the water. You know, people made fun of our football program saying we're the armpit of the sec or whatever. Thank you for putting guys in position to make us competitive on a national level across the board. So it's hard not to just admire him and what he's been able to do at Arkansas in such a short period of time. It's one thing to get a higher right, but when you are in the basement in a, in a league as competitive as the SEC, to be able to get the, both of those hires right and to turn it around. I mean, there are not a lot of power five programs that you look at nationally that have been able to have success at their two big revenue sports at the same time, where you really have that same sense of optimism kind of with both programs right now. And it speaks to the job that he has done and the way that he has empowered his head coaches and the way that his head coaches have empowered their assistants, players, all those different things is a big part of it. The, the Juracek Pittman dynamic is it's so unique, but so important because every time that we've needed to see Arkansas step up and keep a coordinator, They've been able to do that. It's been taking care of Barry Odom with the three raises, whatever it's at now. I've lost track at this point. The, the Kendall Bryles Miami thing, when that comes out, everybody's kind of like, well, you know, it's a given. It's going to get taken care of. He's like, they're going to let him leave for Miami. Did you get any sense that that was real at all? Or was it because of, hey, this is how much he's been able to, to kind of step up to the plate that this was never going to happen? Well, people have to remember who the agent is of Kendall Bryles and Barry Odom. It is Jimmy Sexton. And we know Jimmy Sexton, if you know college sports, especially college football, the dude is incredible at his job. But you know how he does it, though. He, he's able to wheel and deal. He's able to get raises, get extensions, all those things. So keep that in mind. But on top of that, though, and this is just from what I've heard from people inside the program, what I've heard from, uh, from the coaches themselves, too, is the thing that is a like, because first off, if you would have told me Barry Odom and Kendall Bryles both were going to remain in the Razorback football program for three straight years while also having incredible success, I would have thought you were crazy because I'm like, man, you know, it's the first chance these guys get, they're going to be out of here. Um, but from what I hear and what I understand, 
is yes, the money's there. Yes, the raises are there. Yes, that's great. But working for Sam Pittman has made them just like they they can't figure out or find a diff- better situation than what they're in as far as coordinators go than working for Sam Pittman. Because and Barry Odom has said this many times. He's like the game, the reason that Barry Odom came and worked with Sam Pittman, a guy who'd never been a head coach before was because when he laid out his game plan and when he laid out the way he wants to build the program, it, he just knew, he's like, this guy gets it. This guy knows what it takes to win in the SEC and knows what it takes to win at a high level by doing all the small things right. And on top of that, being able to provide these coordinators with full control, like a lot of coaches, as we know, can be meddlers. You know, they want to, they want to get all the credit. They want to make sure, Hey, it's about me. You know, if I'm a defensive guy, that's great, but you know, it comes down to me and all that. But what Sam Pittman has done every single time, if you've ever seen after a game, after that Texas win, after that A&M win, after the LSU win, whatever, every single time after the game, sideline reporter in his face, he says, starts the same thing. We just have a great staff. We just, I love, I'm happy for the kids. He doesn't give any credit to himself. It's always to the staff, always to the players. And when you have a coach with that type of mentality, it makes it really easy to work for him and work with him because he allows them to be able to have control and to be creative and to do the things that they want to do. So uh, on top of all that, and to to say all that, I think that that's one of the main reasons that Kendall Browse and Barry Oden have been able to stay here because not only is it a great place to be at, Fable's awesome, it's a great program to be in. Razorback fans are rabid. You're seeing the growth and you're seeing the results of them putting in the hard work. But I think that they just understand that working with Sam Pittman and what he's building is a lot better than trying to go somewhere new where you don't really know what the end result's going to be. I think that I think that both of them are going to stay at Arkansas until at least one of them gets a head coaching job. I don't think they leave for another coordinator position. And I think that because of Sam Pittman and how great he's been has been the difference in that. Went on your show and and talked. Well, I, I think I, we talked about KJ on both of your shows um, on Lockdown Razorbacks, um, and we talked on the on the buzz about this, but um, and on out of bounds. But I, I think that those who are looking at this KJ situation, thinking that they have it figured out, um, if they think that he has limited upside, I, I would push back on that a little bit because you see it within some of these 60 minute windows where like I rewatched the, the Arkansas Ole Miss game on Friday night, like sat down and watched all of it for a podcast that we're working on. And it reminded me of how fun PKJ was last year. And that day was, was absolutely PKJ. I mean, the run in the fourth quarter where he fakes out like three different defenders skirts into the end zone and then the Superman run, of course, and even the moments where he's like, screw it. I'm just going to throw it to Traylon Burks and single coverage, the back-to-back 37 yard plays. KJ is unbelievable when he gets going. What do you think his upside is? Because I know it's been talked about a lot with the, the way too early Heisman stubs and all those different things. Is, is his upside to be the best Arkansas quarterback in the 21st century? I mean, he, he's definitely on pace for that. And I think that some of the stuff that he's even recognized, like coming into last year and looking back on it, you know, he talked about, he, he, they, he was a little overweight. Like they didn't they feel like he was in the best shape that he needed to be. And he even admitted that. And apparently that's something that they're going to emphasize and put in the work in the off season. But you look at the numbers that he was able to put up. I mean, let's be honest, having Traylon Burks and wide receiver like that's always helpful. I mean, the guy, that guy is the best wide receiver to ever play at Arkansas talent wise. I, I yeah. believe that. Um, but what he was able to, what KJ was able to do and 
not only making plays, but limiting, like he had no turnovers. He, he threw four interceptions in the entire year. Uh, one of them was at the end of halftime or at halftime before halftime against Ole Miss, which it was, was a hell Mary. Yeah. Yeah. And the other three or yeah, the, at least two of them, I can try to remember the third one, but one of them gets Texas and one of them was against Penn state in the bowl game. And both of them were incredible plays by the cornerback. So his decision-making is, is incredible too, but here's what separates KJ from and could be could separating him to make him the best quarterback of all time. He's got a little Matt Jones in him. If you, that's an old reference that I can go in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 <laughs> not, not, not Mac Jones, not Matt Jones. I can think like we're talking about, Arkansas football quarterback, Matt Jones from 2001 to 2005. It's gamemanship. When the, when the lights come on and they need a play from him and the game's on the line, he delivers. You mentioned the goal miss game. Arkansas didn't win. It was, but they went for two, still agree with the call to go for two, just didn't make it. He got the ball with the game on the line and drove downfield and scored a touchdown. Put Arkansas in a position to win. Mississippi State. Arkansas's down at home, five minutes roughly to go. Got 75 yards to go downfield. He goes downfield and scores a touchdown. Like when the biggest and most important moments of games and in clutch situations, he has delivered. He went and did his job. He led the team down for a touchdown. And to me, take his arm strength, take his legs, take his decision-making, take all of that. That's great. But what separates you as an incredible quarterback no matter where you play, no matter what level, is when the, when the team needs you the most, how do you deliver? And KJ has delivered every single time. And to me, as long as he could keep up his numbers, gets in better shape, and is able to be able to find that, you know, still be able to perform without Traylon Burks next year, which is going to be key. If he can just pick up right where he left off and be able to improve of what he did even this past year, I don't see any reason why, if Arkansas has another great year next year, he can't go down as being the greatest quarterback of this century. And here's the thing, though, Connor. I think the greatest quarterback at Arkansas ever, my opinion, played this century in Ryan Mallett. I think Ryan Mallett, quarterback, bona fide, best quarterback. If KJ has another great year and has maybe even a better year than this past year and Arkansas has a great season, he surpasses Ryan Mallett in my book. To me, he will be the greatest quarterback in Razorback history, which is not saying much because Arkansas has not had a lot of great quarterbacks, let's be sure. honest. But uh, he will go down as the greatest quarterback of this century and possibly of all time. If he is going to take that next step, it feels like, and we talked about Traylon Burks a lot, it feels like KJ needs Jaden Hazelwood to step in and become a legit one. And, and I'm, I, I don't want to hold him to the Traylon Burks standard. That is an unfair thing to have to walk into. And I would never assume that of a player, but he obviously comes in with a ton of hype, former five-star guy from Oklahoma, never really took off. Felt like one of those guys that could have benefited a lot. If Spencer Rattler had been able to figure it out last year, what are your expectations for Hazelwood in this offense, knowing the opportunity that's available to him? I think the expectation is for him to, like you said, maybe not replace Traylon Burks as far as talent and ability, but production wise, kind of be that number one guy. Cause that's the one thing that makes Razorback fans a little nervous is when Traylon Burks wasn't in the game or, or you know, he, he wasn't playing in the bowl game. Who do you go to? Well, there wasn't a whole lot there. There were other guys that were going on with, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, people are hopeful that some of these younger guys like Keetron Jackson maybe steps up and maybe could be really good too. But you need that bona fide number one. You need that guy that you can count on. And I think Hazelwood, because of him being a five star and him being 
uh, a player that a lot of uh, Razorback fans have read up about and saw his highlights coming out of high school and everything. It's like, okay, well, he needs to be that guy. Um, but I think that it's almost unfair to going back to the point of, you know, who is, who is uh, going to replace Burks or how is KJ going to work without Burks? I mean, let's be honest. If you have Traylon Burks on your team, what's your game plan offensively? Get the ball to him. So that's not like anything like, oh, that's all that Jefferson knows how to do. It's like, no, you want to get the ball to your best player's hands. And so next year, you're not going to have a once in a generation type of talent in Traylon Burks. So pass it around a little bit. Other guys step up. I think Hazelwood, though, just from what I've seen and what I've heard, he can be that guy. You know, he's a thousand yard receiver. At least he could be like he's got that potential. Um, but it's going to come down to to the game plan and, and KJ Jefferson and who he feels most comfortable with getting the ball. And if it's Hazelwood, I think that he's going to have a really big year for Arkansas. I'm trying to temper overall expectations. I don't think Arkansas should start in the top 10 like a certain Joel Klatt had some other media outlets yeah. sipping, sipping the, the Sam Pittman Kool-Aid and understandably so. But I just think that they will probably start off in the top 25, but maybe somewhere in that 15 to 20 range. I think it's, yeah, they, they started off uh, 18 in 2015. So there's a decent chance they're going to have their best preseason ranking since 2012, which of course the aftermath of Bobby Petrino. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's a fair place for this team to start? You know, I, I'm not going top 10, like as much as I love that, like I'm not, I can't, there's just, there's too, too much, but I gave you an entire show's worth oh, of content. Man. That was perfect for you. Yeah. It's like <laughs> almost crap my pants. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, do you know something I don't like what's going on? So, uh, but honestly, I think top 20 is about right. You know, maybe 18, 19, something like that. Uh, because you know, it's, it's in the sec West. It's always going to be tough. And I know that they return a lot of talent, but you're losing Burks, uh, Grant Morgan and Hayden Henry, two really good experienced linebackers. You're losing, uh, you know, you're losing, uh, uh, Monteric Brown, who I think was one of a, a very underrated quarterback. Yeah. For Arkansas. And, and it was really good. Losing him, you lose your entire defensive line. So, uh, you, you were able to add some guys in here in the, in the transfer portal and, and to get some guys to replace them. But, I think the offense will be fine. It's the defense and how they're going to step up with these new guys. And so I think potentially they have a chance to be top 20. And here's another thing too. I'm looking at the schedule. Of course, you know, tail is old as time, traditionally like no other. Arkansas is going to have the number one difficult schedule in the country. It's just kind of what's going to happen. I mean, they're non-conference. They open up against Cincinnati. Like I know that it's not Cincinnati. They're losing a lot from my It's year. brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Like you open up against Cincinnati. You play Missouri State, the fighting Bobby Petrinos makes his return to Fayetteville. <laughs> you know, you got you got Liberty with Hugh Freeze. You go on the road to BYU, and that's just your non-conference games. And then you have uh, South Carolina, game two of the season, Spencer Rattler. He's going to be the quarterback there. So you just like, you're going to have a difficult schedule. But I think what I'm looking at, what Razorback fans are looking at, and why they think that they may end up being better than 20th is because I'm looking at the schedule besides Bama, which we all know it's going to be tough. There's a lot of uncertainty about the whole SEC schedule that Arkansas has where, you know, like Ole Miss, they lost a ton. How, I mean, how, how, are, how good are they going to be? And you get that game at home. LSU, Brian Kelly, good coach, good program, but we don't know what that's going to look like. Like, is it maybe he has a little tough time getting off the, off the ground. You get that game at home. South Carolina, the, the situation there, you get that game at home. On the road against Auburn, Brian Harson may not even be the coach by then, so who knows? You could win that game. Mississippi State, you've beaten twice already under Pittman. You could beat them again, too. Missouri, you know, it's Missouri. So the point is, like, I'm not saying Arkansas is going to win all those games. But besides Alabama on the schedule, there's no game that I look at and say, yeah, that's a loss. Like last year, you had Georgia, 
A&M, which I guess A&M could be another loss too. You never know with that game though. But point is, is that Arkansas, who's eight and four again next year is completely and totally feasible. And if you're an eight and four team in the SEC West, you're top 25 team. So I think that Arkansas potentially as good could flirt with the top 10. Uh, but I think in reality, being right there at the top 20 is about right. Before I let you go, you got a Petrino story that you can share on these airwaves? <laughs> oh, man, I got a few of them. I don't know if they're good ones, but um, Petrino story. So he, a lot of people don't know this, but like the, the practice facility that Arkansas has right now was built because of Petrino. And, you know, it was built because of what Petrino wanted. And if you go in there, it's very unique because the coach's offices are hidden, like completely and totally underground hidden. And the reason being for that is because Petrino didn't want anyone ever bothering him, didn't want anyone coming in, didn't want, didn't want to see anyone. And so they're all down there. Well, one of the reasons being, and I had this from a friend of mine, they had this, they had this, uh, this thing where they were, I think it was the children's hospital here in Arkansas, where they were just kind of doing a, a giveaway, like a, you know, a nice little uh, raffle, raffle or whatever. And part of the deal was that uh, Petrino was going to sign some footballs. To, to be a part of it when he was the head coach. And a friend of mine who was in the marketing department was in charge, all right, take these footballs, get them over to Petrino and have him sign them and then return them. He goes to his office, knocks on the door, and it's met with uh, like, uh, like vitriol and uh, <laughs> anger. And it's just like, hey, coach, you know, I just need you to sign these footballs for the Arkansas Children's Hospital. And he absolutely gets ripped. Uh, just Petrino starts throwing all types of obscenities at him. I don't have time for that. Like just ripping him and just undressing this guy. So my, the guy I know, he just drops the footballs and says, sign them and let us know whenever you get done. And then he walked out. Like that was for the children's hospital for signing <laughs> footballs. And like, I heard a bunch of stories like that where, you, you know, like in the equipment room, he came down his very first, like, interaction with the guys in the equipment room he goes down he's like i need i need a pickup truck to go we got some stuff we got to pick up and they're like well coach we don't have a pickup truck and he just starts ripping them what kind of backwards type of program like just ripping them so like he's just a jerk like all the stories about him is is, is he's just a jerk but my favorite thing though and this was actually uh, at louisville i don't know if people remember this story but it fits in arkansas is it was when this stuff was coming out about coaches and, you know, kind of sometimes having racist behavior, saying racist things or whatever it may be. And then people start talking about, okay, how many other interactions with coaches across the country have said some of these things or had these things. And I don't remember the Louisville player, but he came out and said, he's like, well, I know for a fact, Petrino wasn't racist. That dude hated everybody. It's like, he didn't <laughs> just hate one guy. He's like, or one, he hated everybody. And that was so true. He, he literally hated everyone. And so great coach militant guy, a lot of respect for the guy as a coach, but when it came to him as a person, man, and he, he was just somebody I couldn't imagine working with. And I honestly still to this day, my theory is that's why Jeff Long fired him more than anything is not because yeah. Okay. That stuff was bad, but I still think he could have kept him would have kept him, but because he was such a jerk and a pain to work through and work with, I think Jeff Long said, okay, I'm just going to use this as an excuse to get rid of this guy. Cause I can't do it anymore. 
was the easiest way to fire a head coach. Like, Hey, you guys saw the neck brace, right? Like we, we, were, we were there. We all saw that. That's the easiest way to be able to say, yeah, we can fire this head coach with, with cause no, uh, no debate about it. Um, I want to get you out with this one last thing. And I've already asked you about this twice uh, off of air. Yeah. So this is going to come off. I'm going to come off like Angela in the office when Dwight sprays Roy with the pepper spray and Angela keeps being asked or keeps asking people around the office to retell the story. You have become buddies with and coworkers as well, which is a crazy thing um, with one of my favorite country music artists, Mr. Small Town USA himself, Justin Moore. Yeah. Um, can you tell us how that story evolved? Uh, well, from my understanding, like I wasn't involved in the hiring process or anything like that, but, uh, essentially, uh, for those that don't know, and maybe you do at one Oh three, seven, the buzz it's, it's the premier radio station sports talk in all the state of Arkansas. Like Sick nothing, rag, yeah. like it, it, nothing comes close. It's big time. And, um, in the, mo- the morning show, like drive time sports in the afternoon for sure has held its own, but the morning show has been the moneymaker. Because David Basil, who is awesome, like yep. he's, 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 if you know college football, know SEC football, you know David Basil, he's awesome. They got Roger Scott on there, who's kind of the, the wacky, crazy guy that always doing crazy stunts and stuff. And he, he's great too. Well, they had Tommy Smith, who was a legend in Arkansas radio forever. Uh, and especially in Little Rock for 30, 40 years, everyone knew about him. Well, he's getting up there in years and he was going to decide to retire. And everyone was like, wow, how? how are you going to replace this guy? I mean, he is the morning show. He's the show with no name is what they called it. It's like, I don't know how you do this because whoever they has to step in after him and they're going to have their hands full. And I was one of those people too, where I'm like, I have no idea how, who are they going to bring in that even comes close to that. Well, then I start hearing rumblings about uh, Justin Moore. And I was like, why would Justin Moore do a radio show? The guy is a country artist. Like he's touring and stuff. Like I was like, I could see him coming on as a guest, you know, every so often, but being a full-time host, no way. And then when it was announced, I was like, Whoa, okay. Like, I mean, that's, that's about as good as you could ever do when it comes to replacing a legend in radio and replace a guy with a country Western music star. Like it, it was huge. And Justin's already always had a, you know, a podcast and he's done some broadcasting and things like that too. So that part of it wasn't surprising and how good he was and how, how much he felt like it would work. But uh, I think that that just not, not to toot our own horn, but I think it just shows the the power and the influence of the radio station I work for and why I love it. And why I love one Oh three, seven, the buzz is that you can offer a job to a country music star to do a morning show where he's going to have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning every day and, and get ready for it and then do four hours of radio every day on top of his music career. And it look enticing enough to do it. Like no other radio station that I know of could do that, especially one in sports talk. So uh, the fact that it kind of played out the way it did and the way it's working out for him and he's doing a great job is just really awesome. And I'm, I'm happy. And I it was just like, I've, I've seen him in concert a few times too. I would have never guessed like sitting there watching him, like, you know, one day I'm going to work with that guy on the radio. You know, one guy, that, that guy's going to be my colleague on the radio. Never would have dreamed that would happen. But uh, I think it just shows you the, the, the awesome station that we're at. And um, the fact that we're able to do that. And I just moved lower down on the totem pole. Like nobody cares about <laughs> me. Like I'm just over there having a good time and I'm like eighth on the list. So, but uh, yeah, it's awesome, man. It's awesome being able to have him on the station for sure. And, all right. Now that you got, now that, you, you know, you, your boys, he's got to come to Gabriel's incognito for karaoke at ICC media days. Like 
we got We got to figure out some way. I mean, he's a tough person, like, you know, hat down. You just kind of never know. And then he just gets up there and then you kind of realize, Oh, it's just more and just more could handle himself. Karaoke. Yeah. I've, I've thought about that. Cause we do some karaoke events, at my station too. And I'm like, if he comes out, the, the, there has to be rules in place. He yeah. can't sing country songs. <laughs> it's like, he has to, he has to do like R and B or like, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, what's that guy that, uh, sings like those very like operatic, like operatic spiritual songs, like Josh Groban, like, yeah, yeah. that guy, like, you, okay. You have to sing something ridiculous. Like you can't go in there and, you know, sing one of your songs or sing right. any other country song. Cause it's just like, you're going to put everyone to shame. So if we can get them to, it, it has to be rules in place, but, uh, yeah, if we can get them out there, man, that'd be, that'd be really cool. Uh, I don't know if sec media days is really his, uh, thing probably not but you know hey who knows maybe it's something he'd be interested in doing especially uh because it's going to be in atlanta next year or this Atl- year. yeah atlanta 2022 and then it's it'll make its way back to who, yeah right like yeah. at some point so yeah so well, you just entice him to saying hey dude you get to go to atlanta yeah find some place to play a show there that week and you know kill two birds with one stone do media days and do a concert works out both ways sounds good to me we'll make yeah, it happen let's do it john this has been great man hogs by 90 Absolutely. Hogs by 90, baby. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates for us. You never know what you're going to get. Excellent subject for today's figuring out. Shout out to you, Dan. We are Hmm. talking gas station food. Yeah, that's right. Um, Oh, yeah. First of all, Dan, just so the people know, you have been... Our, our producer for a little bit now. First on-air appearance for you. Will used to produce and then transitioned into his current role with us. We have a rule on this podcast. The only people who can produce it are LSU fans who live in Atlanta. That's it. Okay. Yeah. That's that seems fair. <laughs> I mean, you didn't know that during what you know in the summer when we made the transition, but now I know. Yeah, now you know. You're an expert in this area, and you were the one who came up with the initial idea to talk gas station food. I am not much of a gas station food guy. Dabbled a little mm-hmm. bit in high school. We used to go to Speedway, get the 44 ounce Mountain Dew Slurpees for like 89 cents. Did you have those? Were those an Atlanta thing as well? No. So, you know, born and raised in Houston. And right. in terms of Slurpees, I would say that uh, it was 7-Eleven, which is more of like uh, central to north central Texas Dallas, Fort Worth, and West Texas big, and that's where they had them. So uh, those were huge. But in my area, it was the stop and goes were, okay. were big ones. So What is yeah. the go part of, of that? Is it like I, stop yeah. and then go to the bathroom or stop and like go do whatever you want to do? Yeah, that. I mean, go in there, get you a hot dog, get you, you know, a, 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 a piece of candy and something to drink and then, you know, go back to your car and go, uh, I guess would be uh, the part of it. But uh, yeah, uh, that uh, that's part of it. And and I hope I'm not speaking at a turn here. What kind of gave me the initial idea for this is shout out Graham Coffee, uh, Dog Out West on uh, Twitter, uh, does some uh, work for SB Nation, I believe. And he was talking about his road trip through New Mexico, and he found a spot that had amazing New Mexican food in a gas station. And of course, years ago, it was Ed Ogeron talking about chicken on a stick at the Oxford Mm. Exxon. And of course, people were like, you know, food at a gas station, like really? But it's like, no, if you're not doing it, you're missing out. And if you're looking down on it, you're missing out. 
there is something that we, we should probably address. There's a distinction here, right? Gas station food is not picking up a granola bar, road trip snacks, candy. I, you can get that anywhere. If you can get it anywhere, it doesn't really count. It's got to be exclusive to a specific gas station. Like I, I love me some some Wawa. Big fan of the subs was over there just this past weekend. French vanilla iced coffee, delicious. If you haven't tried it, you definitely should. Um, but even to quote Morgan Wallen, I am not a same gas station cup of coffee in the morning type of guy. Right? Mm-hmm. That's that's never really been me. But tell the tell the people why gas station food holds a near and dear place in your heart because you have a very specific obsession. Yeah. So I would say that the biggest thing is exclusivity almost where it is, you will have the people who look down on it and say, Oh, I, you know, no way I'm going to eat at a gas station. I will go to, you know, any of these other places on the road, but I'm not going to eat something from a gas station. And it's like, no, you're, you're looking at it completely wrong because a lot of times you can find uniqueness there. Uh, you can find, you know, foods that necessarily it's, if you were part of that first group that I mentioned there that you would be like, huh, man, that was pretty good. And if I had stayed in that mindset, I would have missed out on said good food. So, um, you know, in our part of the country, barbecue, let's go. Uh, if you're in probably Texas, Arizona, California, areas like that, tacos, let's go. I mean, so, you know, there's, there's a, there's a wide variety of just, amazingness that you can get at certain gas stations. I think you own the most stock in Bucky's. I don't know if Bucky's is a publicly traded company, but you love Bucky's more than any person I've ever heard. What is your go-to at Bucky's? And is it, do you consider it's the tier one of gas station food? So it's a little bit of nostalgia and, you know, sad about not uh, being able to get it as much as possible in Texas. But here in Georgia, we now have a Bucky's in Fort Valley, uh, kind of the Warner Robins area in middle Georgia. So uh, for those of you who are familiar with road trips to Jacksonville or down the Florida, if you take 75 South, you can hit it there. If you're taking 75 North through Calhoun, you can hit it there. So when we were on our way up to Indianapolis for the national championship drive with uh, me and the guys from 6A, the fan, we stopped right there. And I would say that it kind of depends on the time of day. If it's the morning, kolaches are in play. Okay. And all right. So, so you know, if, if that's the case, you go in there, get you a sausage, egg, and cheese, uh, maybe even a jalapeno sausage and cheese. And for those of you that don't know what kolaches are, pig in a blanket basically is what it is. But they're acceptable in Texas as being breakfast where, you know, you'll you'll have places all throughout central Texas that have many different types. And supposedly, I guess, like for those uh, who are of uh, a Czech descent, they would tell you, well, traditional kolaches have fruit in them. Come on, man. I ain't eating something with fruit for breakfast. I I want hot greasy. That's it. That's it. So, you know, you got the uh, jalapeno sausage right there. That's what you're working. If it's for lunch, then people will wait in line for it. And they have the carving station right there. Brisket sandwiches, like, like legit. And, and I've darn near seen a fight started over somebody grabbing too many brisket sandwiches. And they were like, well, come on, man. You know, I'm grabbing them for the, for the car. And the guy was like, well, the car is not in here. I'm here. So yeah, it was, it was one of those that uh, I got to see it from a distance kind of, because I had actually already grabbed my sandwich and I grabbed my one. Uh, But uh, yes, uh, those, those are in play for that. And then of course at night, a, a, a wide array of coffees 
And it, it is uh, it, it is quite the the go to. If there is a Bucky's, I am stopping. That that I knew. That I definitely knew. And the way that you describe it, it sounds like a place that because I, I personally never been. I've never been to Bucky's. Hand up. And I, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not going to assume things about it. And I came from a place where gas station food. Um, it, it is not treated like it is in certain parts of the country. I know Mississippi is really prideful of, of having really good gas station food. It's something to talk about with KJ Jefferson a whole lot. Love the gas station food. But I want to take this to the Facebook group and to you as well. And I'm going to defer to you in a lot of these situations here because you are the expert. But I ask these questions. Gas station food in general, ya or nah? If ya, where and what? Is Bucky's overrated, underrated, or properly rated? When is it no longer considered gas station food and any gas station food horror stories? So let's bring up the Facebook group here. We've got a lot of great responses here. Y'all have some serious opinions about this. Um, Michael Dark says, I usually try to avoid gas station food with only a few exceptions. Racetrack pizza is all right, but the gas station, best gas station food is the spicy chicken sandwich at Parker's. Savannah has a ton of Parker's, so it does the trick if I don't feel like waiting in line at Chick-fil-A or Zaxby's. It's on my Mount Rushmore of fast food chicken sandwiches. All right. Parker's. I got to give this a shot. Uh, Parker's. I I do not know Parker's. Like I've I've never even heard of that. No, I hadn't either. And granted, I've only been to Savannah once. So I guess next time I go and if I see on the because that's the other thing is, too, is we all know when we make our stops off the highway, it's a amount of options or it's B, it has something that you've been hankering. And so in this case right here, if the next, you know, blue board that I see when I'm coming off the highway, if I see that uh, there is a Parker's on there, I'll give it a shot. Why not? Let's go. I think we're supposed to be planning a family vacation with Lauren's side of the family to Savannah sometime in the next couple of years. That's the goal to be able to get up there and maybe both of us can be able to drive there a little bit more of a, of a neutral place. The suggestion, Hey, let's go to Parker's gas station food. I can't, you can't sell somebody on that. You you can't because there is at least one person who is going to feel uneasy about it. And it's not that, and, and I'm, I'm speaking from a place of honesty here because I'm going to get into my wah wah love in a second. But there is something about saying those words that are immediately left with like, a, oh, that's disappointing. There's got to be a better option available. Why wouldn't you choose the better option? Right. And also, if it goes wrong and if there's a food poisoning, you're going to feel really dumb if you get food poisoning from a gas station. Dan, are you working <laughs> past food poisoning right now? Yeah, I am. I am. So I'm in kind of like the uh, the tiredness rundown phase of it where the stomach doesn't hurt anymore and I haven't had the eruptions. But uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine how this podcast would have been if I was still, you know, excuse me. Uh, no, um, no. So, so we're good on that. It's just a, a little bit of the exhaustion from Saturday night of uh, not being able to go to sleep because of said issues. But you're right. I think that kind of, you know, I, I hope I'm on the right track with you on this one. There's got to be an air of spontaneity a little bit of, you know, hey, we're here. Dude, you got to try this. This is this is really trust me. This is good. You, yeah. You can't say in the cell that we're going to a gas station. You can't mm-hmm. you can't say that. You just got to say, hey, we're going to this place. This place has the best tacos. And then sometimes you could show up there and look around and be like, we're at a gas station, aren't we? The mm-hmm. best donut in Orlando bar none is DG donuts. Answer damn good donuts. It is connected to a gas station. 
It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. If you just looked up the location of it, you would say, what are we doing here? And then you would look right. and you'd see all the different things that they do. And you'd walk inside and you'd be like, oh my God, this place is heaven. You can get an apple fritter the size of a pizza for like three bucks. It's unbelievable. But it's all about the sell. And that's a key mm-hmm. point and key thing to remember with gas station food and why some, maybe myself included, have been maybe a little bit reluctant to try it because, hey, you know, the downside or any sort of stigma association. But I'm going to open, I need to open myself up more is what I'm saying here. Sure. Okay. Caleb Tillman says, actually, you know what? Let's get into my Wawa love. Ryan Land, <laughs> you, I think you're a Wawa guy too, if I'm not mistaken. No, I, I've never had it. I, I'm not opposed to it. It's kind of like, you know, I would say that Bucky's and Wawa is the service station, or I guess in this case, convenience store, gas yeah. station equivalent of uh, Whataburger and In-N-Out Burger. And in some cases with people, it's just a frame of reference. If you hadn't had In-N-Out Burger, you don't know. I've had them both. I, I just like Whataburger. It's what I grew up on. And it's also too, I mean, it's kind of like what me with Bucky's is, is I grew up with it. Now, if I grew up in Philly or New Jersey or even in parts of Florida and I, and I was used to it and then had Bucky's, I'd probably be like, oh, Wawa, let's go. Yeah. Um, Ryan Land says there is nothing better than a Wawa hoagie. I've heard. Great hangover food. Great, and, 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 and you want to talk about and my girlfriend gives me so much crap for it. Love of sandwiches, and with an industry that me and you are in, Connor, where a lot of road trips, sandwiches are an amazing play. So, if you got a great sandwich, let's go. I'm in. The ability to customize at Wawa is superior. I remember after it was this, it was the Saturday after the Friday night of my bachelor party. And I had eight of my buddies down here in Orlando. I'm like, what is something I can get them or I can at least customize it somewhat. And it's not going to make people feel like death. Wawa hoagies. That's what we did. And I got like, like 10 hoagies to, to bring back. Everybody can kind of customize their order. You sit there on a little touch screen right there. They have like pretty much everything you could want. And Wawa feels different because if I'm not mistaken, it was a convenience store and then they added gas to it. So it was like they added, all right, you, you know, they added the gas station element to it, which I don't know. Like, I mean, I guess you do that to be more profitable. And from a business standpoint, that makes sense. Oh, but yeah. how, how much different they would be considered if it was just a convenience store and they didn't have gas there? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and that's the thing too, is that what is a big part of your road trip that like is feeding into your stopping, I guess, your propensity to do it? It's convenience, right? So if you look down at your gas meter and you see, hmm, I could get gas. Okay. That feeds into it. You got to take a leak. All right. That's part of it as well. You want something to drink. You just want to stretch your legs, do all that. So that's a big part of it. That's why like Bucky's and Wawa and places like that are so huge yep. is because you, you knock it all out. You get it all done. Doesn't, doesn't, um, isn't a Bucky's who has like the most, the most bathroom stalls of, of any gas station in America. Cleanest too. Oh, cleanest. When, they, when they say that too, they're not just doing lip service. Like you go into those bathrooms, they're legit clean. Like, you know, we've been in gas station bathrooms before where you're definitely doing the one foot up on the handle. You're, if you got to sit down, you're putting down the toilet paper, like you're doing all that. You ain't doing that at Bucky's. You don't have to worry about it. Just sitting on a nice throne. If you got to, you know, take a little bit more time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that that is a, an underrated element to all of this. 
Caleb Tillman says, gas station food is gas station food as long as the brand is only found in gas stations. So if a gas station has an in-house Dunkin' Donuts, their breakfast sandwiches are not gas station food. Yes. But if I'm in Tennessee at a twice daily and pick up some breakfast at White Bison, that's definitely gas station food and it's glorious. Caleb's right. White bison. I, I I have not heard of white bison. Uh, that's got to feed it. And 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 he's one hundred percent right because when we were going to talk about this, I thought about that with like you know like loves flying J pilot like places yeah. like that. They'll have the Arby's, the McDonald's, all that kind of stuff. So he's exactly right. Like it's it's a partnership within the gas station. But uh, I will say this: like loves uh, their their breakfast biscuits are pretty darn good, and I believe that they are made by them. Have you ever seen a white bison? I have not. I hadn't even heard of this, but now I'm going to be on the lookout. Now I'm curious. I mean, in my high school, it was the Buffalo Grove bison. Now my okay. brain is just in a pretzel thinking about a white bison, but I have never come across white bison. Um, yeah, the, the, the animal, if it exists, or the actual location. Yeah. yeah. Both might as well be unicorns to me. Um, Joseph McGee says, Hell yeah, on the gas station food. I trust gas station food a lot more than gas station bathrooms, if that says anything. Already kind of hit on that. And uh, he says, I've never been to a Bucky's, but I'd say it's properly rated. I feel like those who've never been say it's overrated, and those who've been will say it's underrated. The balance is why it's properly rated. The real debate is QT versus Sheets versus Wawa. I'm a QT guy, but only because I live in an area without a Wawa. Okay, that's fair. And, and like, just real quick on the Bucky's, because I know we don't want to harp on it too much. I would say that he's right. The people who say it's overrated, you could even throw some people in that group and kind of like two subcategories that have been there. And I think either one, their expectations were way too high for what could be delivered or two, overwhelmed because you can allow yourself to get overwhelmed by the amount of snacks that you can get, by the fact that you can buy Costa Del Mar sunglasses in there, or that you can buy just numerous different things. You can buy house furniture in there and you can buy what? beer corn. For, yes. Yes. You can buy like patio. Fur- it's, it's kind of like Cracker Barrel, like where you can buy like patio furniture or Yeti coolers. I mean, it's seriously, it, it's, it's convenience store, store, gas station all in one. So that's a possibility. And now that the way that they've built them is they are the sizes of Walmarts. Like these things are huge now. And, and, and I think that that could probably feed into it a little bit more as well. Uh, QT, definitely some QT. Now, now I would say that QT in terms of the, you know, like I've never like been driving and I see QT and I'm like, oh man, like I need QT because I feel like a lot of the food they have is what other places have. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you know the, uh, the taquitos, you can pretty much get taquitos wherever. Um, the hot dogs, same deal. Same Corn rotisserie dogs, thing. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, sheets, I've heard of sheets, but, but haven't done sheets. East Coast, I believe as well. I, I think yeah. sheets and Wawa are big, big competition. I have not experienced okay. sheets. My brain is now hung up on this furniture element. <laughs> at Bucky's, how many people have lost maybe a furniture they've had strapped to their car and thought, no big deal. In 20 minutes, we're going to be at Bucky's and we'll be totally fine. We can replace it there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that would be interesting. Uh, somebody drop a line in the uh, comments. I, I, I would be. <laughs> 
interested to find that out. But yeah, I mean, that's why where they have strategically placed these in Georgia, for example, and I know that they have one in Leeds, Alabama, which is in between uh, Birmingham and Atlanta too. So you really kind of see what their strategy is here, but you know, they're, they're figuring with Warner Robins, the Fort Valley location right there. It's probably the people who are going from there down to Florida Mm. for beach vacations, everything like that. So it's a big stop there. And then on the way back, it's, Kind of a you know little Easter egg for you on the way back, and then same deal. You're going up to Tennessee. You're going up to the mountains. You're going up to you know the lakes, whatever it might be. So you know you're picking up just uh, tons of supplies, tons of supplies. So yeah, that could be a possibility as well. And I've also kind of noticed too. You know, we're not making this a Bucky segment. I, I promise you, this, <laughs> this might be being on here. But it's almost like a status symbol now. Like of people, I've got to buy a shirt. I've got to buy a hat. Like, could we say that Bucky's is almost a convenience store version of Augusta National, where it's like, oh, I gotta oh, buy one of these. I mean, that's that's lofty. I I don't know that we can go to that level if it's got that kind of respect within the the community of those who frequent gas stations. That might be a conversation for truckers. I have an uncle who's a trucker. I can ask him about that it's, if it ranks top, top, top. But man. You're, you're selling it. You're selling it. And I thought about stopping I because I've only passed the Bucky's, I think, once maybe on a road trip where it hasn't been like really far out of the way. But it was coming back. It was coming back from cocktail party this past year. And okay. I thought to myself, all right, I don't have to go to the bathroom right now. I don't need anything to eat or anything because I just stuffed my face at the game for five hours. So I'm good there. Do I really need to stop? Also, I need to get home to watch the rest or to, to be able to watch the rest of this like Auburn Ole Miss game. Or, or, yeah, that, I think that was that night. Kentucky Mississippi mm-hmm. State was that night too. But I didn't stop and I kind of regretted it. Is it no matter what, when you're passing by Bucky's, you will stop regardless of the situation? It is because it's also too, I'm veteran enough to know that there are snacks that will be like vacuum sealed that I can eat later. And I understand, you know, because I'm with you, like I'm a big go shopping at the store, grocery shopping after you've eaten or when you're not necessarily hungry, because that is the worst feeling in the world of when you get home, you look at the receipt or you're like putting things in the refrigerator or later you go to the refrigerator, the pantry, and you're like, why did I buy this? Like, I, I have no business buying this, but I feel like there are certain things that I know at Bucky's that I can get. Like I've got um, I'm kind of like Chuck on uh, the, the Chuck Oliver show. He does the no sugar. So I got the um, sugar-free candy pecans, uh, sugar-free uh, chocolate-covered pecans. You know, like it's stuff like that. Jerky as well. Big-time jerky there. They do their own. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's stuff like that. And that's the thing, too, is, is in terms of like the road trip snack game, because you know, kind of a subtopic here. We all know what road trip snacks are. It's not like, you know, chili cheese fries. It's chips. It's, you know, some sort of like trail mix or something like that, that while your hand on the wheel, you know, you can just throw some in and and, and you're good. Yeah. I, I look, I, I am a, a big time jerky supporter. I totally checks the box that I am looking for on a road trip the fact that they have several means I, I really need to get up to a Bucky's and try it sometime soon. Jeff Williams, like a little like and like a little deli uh, cooler too. Like you know, like you can look at it. Like like you go to the store. Uh, give me a half a pound of that. I'd be overwhelmed, man. I really think I would. Too many choices. <laughs> Jeff Williams says 
Gas station food is the greatest. Who doesn't like corn dogs and potato wedges? The worse the store looks, the better it is. Such a savior late night or early morning. On the way to a game, a deer stand, or the golf course, lots of father-son memories made over gas station food. Nostalgia. The exact mm-hmm. point you brought up. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, gas station late at night, I'm avoiding. I'm avoiding. <laughs> Every time. I'm making sure I get gas earlier in the day especially if I'm in a place where I don't know, you just never know that I've, I've had potential run-ins there. I remember one time stopping, Oh gosh, what was it? Like it's an area right around St. Louis. And I was like, why did I stop here at night? And it was when I was moving down to Orlando and I stopped and I had all my stuff, like all my now wife's stuff just in this U-Haul. And I thought to myself, this was a terrible decision. I regret this instantly, even though it did feel good to be able to like get my like stretched and all that. And I think I got a drink or something inside, but you got, I, I find myself being more careful in those spots, but if you're Jeff and if you're somebody that's got those nostalgic memories, mm-hmm. then more power to you. Nothing wrong. Yeah, with because in, in, in Jeff, I, I feel like I can be in line with him is it's not to say like my dad or our dads could not cook. But it's just certain things that probably father, son, you're more willing to want to try get away with than if mom were with you. So Mm. in this case right here, he's exactly right where it would be, you know, hey, you know, Stucky's has really good biscuits. You want to stop at Stucky's? Good point. Yeah, let's 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 stop there. So, you know, there is that it's kind of the, you know, hey, you know, baseball road trips, all that kind of stuff. When you're riding with dad, like uh, it kind of comes there. I'm with you, Jeff. I love it. Sarthik Sharma says, best fried catfish in Mississippi is usually found in gas stations. There was a Chevron in Brandon. We'd get catfish from right before our big games on Friday nights in high school. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds really good. Mm-hmm. But again, if you're not feeling well, and then you have to explain, because if you're getting it right before a big, you know, mm-hmm. a big game on a Friday night, and if you say yeah. to your coach, why are you feeling well? Oh, catfish at the gas station yeah you're running laps for that so that's that's the tougher part because i'm sure it's delicious and i'm sure it's Mm -hmm. right amazing i i am but that's that's what would always be in the back of my mind but it it shouldn't be it maybe shouldn't be now that i'm in my 30s and i don't have to plan it came out of friday night yeah i mean i i don't necessarily know now then again you know when we were 16 17 18 years old uh, our immune system and our stomachs were probably yes. a little bit more iron than they are now. Um, that makes me want to run to the toilet right now, just thinking about <laughs> the idea of that. Uh, but then again, you know, I'm sure back then, you know, I, actually, no, I, I know for a fact, like how many times, like I ate, like, you know, a double cheeseburger and like large fries and a Dr. Pepper from Whataburger and then went out and pitched a game, you yeah. know, like where, you know, I would think to myself now, oh my God, I need my couch. I need my bed. I'm done for the rest of the day. So maybe that was part of it. Again, like you said, nostalgia, it makes us want to believe we can still do it, but not necessarily still try. I remember watching my buddies in high school, eat like three hot dogs from Speedway and then down like one of those like large Slurpees right before yeah. doing the the, the distance run in, in high school gym class, like the period before we're not, even, we're, we're talking 40 minute grace period, max, max. And to have that in your system, even then, I think that was maybe a little bit of like a, okay, heat check moment here. I mean, just get away with that thing. It's a lesson God. you don't want to, you, you don't want to relive. 
No, absolutely not. Uh, let's go through these last two here. Oh, by the way, Joseph McGee adds that um, what many consider to be the best fried chicken in Charlotte is found at a gas station, though my personal mm-hmm. favorite is Horace's. I don't think that's Horace Grant, but um, Horace's nonetheless. Good yeah, chicken. I, yeah, you know, um, I'll have to defer to, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, shout out uh, Mark Packer uh, when I was leaving uh, ACC kickoff a couple of years ago because West Durham is a friend from here in the Atlanta area. And I had asked him, you know, best barbecue place. And he pointed me to a spot on the way back out of Charlotte. So I'll have to ask him about Horace's. I'm sure uh, Pac knows a little bit about um, uh, about it. But, uh, yeah, like, like Chester's Fried Chicken. Like, I always know that that's one that, that you'll see. And uh, it'll be at uh, gas stations uh, throughout the southeast. I think, if nothing else, at least here in the southeast, we're more willing to do it because it's a – Hey, you know what? Why not? Like we love places like this. Like we love barbecue spots that we know like those pits have been smoked out for yeah. years. Like, you know, that that is the best barbecue in the area. And if the best hole in the wall, if the best food comes from hole in the wall places, then why can't mm-hmm. one of those hole in the wall places be a gas station? Be a gas station. Exactly. exactly. Clayton Tyler Lavelle says chicken biscuit at the golden pantry in Milledgeville. Uh, Chris can probably attest. I am sure he knows exactly what you're talking about. Uh, QT pizza and hot dogs are great too. Bucky's is definitely worth it. Love their kolaches. Is that how you say oh, it? Oh yeah. Pow. That's it. He's got it. Uh, corn nuts and great selection of Celsius too. Um, yeah. I look chicken biscuit, something like that. That's a pretty safe menu item here. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like if you're getting into something that's a little bit, a little bit higher end and you're, you, you know, you're not trying to get like, you're not trying to get a steak at a, at a gas station or something like that, unless it's no. widely regarded, but a chicken biscuit is pretty much safe anywhere. And in fact, to be honest, I got food poisoning from a chicken biscuit at an event that um, my wife's company had like two years ago, but they had these chefs that looked like they were world-class and everybody got food poisoning from this because the chicken yeah. was undercooked. So ah. you know what just goes to show you, Anybody can mess up chicken, and I'm sure that's delicious. That sounds really good right now. I'm no, it does. Too. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. I mean, and, and and that feeds into it as well of uh, when you're willing to stop. But you know, and and I think that the other part of it as well is the ingredients matter. Like I, I think, for example, uh, if uh, breakfast wise you got something, and maybe it's about it, it, actually ingredients in time matter because. Ingredients, yes. Like, you know, for example, a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. Well, you know, egg and cheese, if it's not the proper temperature, it could get a little out there for you. And then it's also the time of day. Like, if you're getting there, like at the gas station, 6, 7 a.m., chances are it was made probably not too long ago. So I, I think you're in, a, you're in a good spot right there. You're getting there about 9, 10, 11. Yeah. You're maybe playing a little bit of roulette there. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily something you want to do because uh, then later on in the evening, you start getting that, man, like, do I have the sweats going a little bit? Like, what's happening here? And, I, oh, man, my, I've, got, I've got that tickle on my stomach. <laughs> Things aren't good. I find myself avoiding foods where I can just pick it up and it's already ready to go. Mm-hmm. I, subconsciously, I think I just avoid those foods in general, even though, like, the, the sushi from Publix is phenomenal. I mean, it's really, really good. I get, get that stuff I, where, I mean, they got the poke bowls there and they're, they're delicious. Never had a bad experience, but that's, 
you know, my wife's usually the one who has them, but I find myself avoiding it at a gas station. If I can just pick it up and it's already there, if I can see it mm-hmm. spinning, you know, the hot dogs on the, the rotisserie things like we were talking about, but it, I, I guess I just feel more comfortable if it's like made behind the counter though, that probably doesn't make any sort of difference at all. Sure. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I guess like if nothing else, like you kind of have like the, the thought in your mind that it was fresh, you know, yeah, that exactly. fresh, that's freshly made and fresh, you know, we usually think means, okay, well, you know, I'm going to be, it's, it's a going to taste good and be uh, probably not going to get sick from it. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that that's probably a big part of it as well. Um, and that's also too, I mean, what are you hungry for? You know, like, like if you're on your way from somewhere and you want, you know, Hey, just something quick. Hey, that hot dog looks good. All right. Let me just, you know, throw some relish on it, throw some onions, Maybe a little bit of mustard. Here we just go. No Back on the just road. no ketchup. Just no ketchup. Yeah. 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 I, 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 yeah. I, I've, I've stopped. I, I have let that part of Texas go for me that uh, we learned, we learned years ago that, yeah, uh, only uh, weird people and Texans put ketchup <laughs> on their hot dogs. And yeah, you know, actually, the, the first time that I was chided for asking for ketchup was uh, at a Red Sox game when they gave me a packet of Golden's mustard. And I just go, oh, hey, can I get some ketchup too? The guys looked at me. And, you know, a little bit different in the South up there. He's looked at me and goes, don't have ketchup. And he kept walking. And I was like, oh, okay. It's like and the guy next to me. Yeah. The guy next to me was like, yeah, we don't do ketchup on dogs here. I was like, oh, sorry. Nor should you anywhere. But that's just my opinion. There you go. Let's end with this one from Jackie Knight Brewer. Jackie says, yeah, forever. There is a truck stop in West Texas, halfway between Dallas and Austin. Damn, this is perfect for you. Um, that has the best kaloshes. Kaloshes, that's how you say it. And, and kalachis. Kalachis. Yeah, kalachis, yeah. Kalachis, my bad. Uh, oh, best, best kalachis I've ever had in my life. And because KFC and Popeyes got too big for their britches, that's a take. Our locally owned gas station down the street is the only place I can find chicken livers. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, Dan, tell me, West Texas, do you know yeah. of this place? Yeah, I, I can't remember the name of the place, but it, there is a place in West Texas, like the town West Comma, Texas is the name of it. Oh, okay. Um, and a uh, little, uh, you know, Cliff Clavin uh, knowledge of the town. Uh, Scott Pasednik, former White Sox, is oh, from yeah. West Texas. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, and I can't remember the exact name of the place. Uh, Josh Abbott Band, if anybody listens to uh, Josh Abbott Band, uh, big uh, Texas country uh, he has a song that he does with Pat Green where he talks about uh, if you ever had a kolache when you go through West. Uh, I believe Pat Green sings that part. But, yeah, there there is a famous spot there that is known for their kolaches. So I, I have I have never tried it, uh, but I definitely would try it uh, if, if I'm ever driving through there. My parents are northwest of Austin, so I don't think they're that far from West. So if I ever have a, a reason to uh, go through there on one of the state highways there in Texas, that stop will be made. I need to hit up a Kalashi place. Kalashi. Mm-hmm. Kalashi. Yes. Nailed it. Dude, Absolutely I, I, dude I, I, I'm telling you right now, like you were talking about with your buddies, like with the, with the bachelor party. Um, if you've, you know, had a little bit of a banged up Friday night and, and you're looking for just a good hearty breakfast, go through a place that, you know, has Kalachis in Texas. And it's like a donut shop. Any of these places, you know, they got the wax paper. What do you want? You know, jalapeno sausage. There you go. Uh, give me uh, bacon, egg, and cheese. Got that. You know, give me a chorizo and cheese. Got that. You know, all that. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely worth it. 
Thank you for everybody who submitted responses to the Facebook group. Join the Saturday Down South Podcast Facebook group if you have not done so. We have a first-time guest coming up later in the week. If you've spent any time on the internet in the last three years, you've seen this guy blowing up. So look forward to that. Next week, we are also going to have, and it just meant more podcasts. I know some of you have been asking, when's the next one coming? We're doing Arkansas Ole Miss. The notes are ready to go. Rewatch has already happened. We're going to be recording that later in the week. I think the plans are to release that next Monday. Should be on this channel and College Football Uncensored as well. I uh, can also watch the episode on YouTube. We're planning to be able to air that. Again, I believe the expectation is early next week for that to be able to to come out if you have not leave us a five-star review subscribe to this podcast if you have not already like i said join the facebook group here named red on air with figuring it out for bold and brash thanks guys talk soon